And I'm going to ask you to join together with me in a word of prayer as we come to God's word together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you're the one who is capable of bringing light out of darkness. You are the one who said that light shall come out of darkness, and you are the one who then shines light into our hearts. A light, Lord, that reveals the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we carry this treasure in our earthen vessels, even as it says so in the Scriptures. But we carry it so that the surpassing greatness of the power of God might be seen throughout the world and might be reflected in our lives. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would give us that ability now, not only to experience you to the full, but Lord, to be able to reflect you in even greater and fuller ways, I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You know, I I have to believe that when someone dedicates themselves to a discipline in life, they do it expecting to receive certain specific and measurable results. For example, if I were to commit myself to going to the gym every day for the next six months and dedicating myself to some specific routine, let's say uh, running on the treadmill or lifting weights, I, I, I do it expecting some measurable results, uh, lower weight, uh, lower blood pressure, uh, even bigger muscles than what I have right now. Uh, I am going to be pumped up. Now, the same would be true then also if you were to be committed to some skill, the practicing of a piano or, or, or some other instrument or maybe learning a language. Whatever it is, you, you would expect that over time, dedicating yourself to a particular discipline, you would experience specific measurable results. And if that's true, then I suppose it's only fair to assume that if in obedience to your commitment to Jesus Christ, that if you were to enroll in his school of prayer and that discipline, that over time you should be able to experience and be able to testify to a number of specific measurable results. True? This morning we come to the end of our season of prayer and our study of the Lord's Prayer that is found in Matthew chapter 6. And once again, I'm going to invite you to to join with me there at the end of verse 13, because that is what we have there, specific measurable results of our life in prayer. And there we read these words. If you have your Bible open there, and, and some of you might have a quizzical look, it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that, that probably sounds so familiar that you would be tempted to, to, to read those words and then move on, but I want you to stop for just a moment and look very closely at your Bible. The chances are that you have a note in it, like the one I have in my Bible, that says something to this effect. This clause is not found in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, some of you, I said, would have a quizzical look on your face because You might not even have this text at all in your Bible, in the Gospel of Matthew. Just a little footnote. All of which really demands a bit of explanation. The fact is that in the earliest manuscripts that we have of Matthew's Gospel, we don't have these words. Basically, 
the prayer ends with Jesus teaching us to pray one final request for ourselves, that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then he moves right on in his teaching to give further instructions on forgiveness in verse 14. So the question comes, where does this come from, this little clause? For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where does that come from? Well, it appears that it was added somewhere toward the end of the first century A.D., where it appears in probably one of the oldest known books on church orders called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was what you might call a handbook or manual for church practices and ethical instructions written down at the instruction of the apostles, and was basically a guide of how to do church as it had just been given birth. And in it, this Didache, the Lord's Prayer was placed as a central feature of a Christian's life as well of as a, a church's worship. In fact, as it appears in the Didache, there are instructions that, that follow the Lord's Prayer. It says, pray thus three times a day. Sounds like a prescription, doesn't it? And then call the doctor in the morning. You know, that type of thing. And as the prayer is recorded, we find these words in the end of the prayer. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And even more, from that point forward, all of the copies of the Bible of the Gospel of Matthew have this text in them. Now, on a literary level, I can appreciate this additional line as an appropriate conclusion to prayer. I mean, you know, if you look at it without that phrase, it seems rather cold and cheerless, really, to end prayer with the word evil, or the evil one, as I said two weeks ago. You just don't want to end the prayer on that particular note. At least I don't. And apparently those who were the first to pray this prayer didn't either. But, but then the question is, what right did they have, or for, what, for that matter, what right do I have to go ahead and add these words to the end of the prayer? Well, I believe that there's a good biblical answer for this. You see, this is what is called a doxology. That word doxology is a compound word, connecting doxa, which means glory, uh, with logos, which means word, which means essentially a doxology is putting glory into words and adding a personal expression to what has just been experienced. It's a testimony, a glorious testimony. Now, I know this is beginning to sound a little bit like a lecture, but hang in there with me. Because, you see, the the Jewish custom throughout the Old Testament was to end all daily prayers with a very brief doxology or a a testimony of glory. In fact, in the whole of Scripture, prayer was always accompanied with a doxology, and what we have here is an echo of what we find specifically in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 and 11, where David, having offered prayer of thanksgiving before all the people, ends his prayer by saying this, and see if this sounds familiar. Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Does that sound familiar? You see, that's doxology. And the type that we have, that we find in the Old Testament and in the Gospel of Matthew, reflect each other. 
I like the way J.I. Packer has explained it. He said, doxology may not appear as part of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in its origin, but in the best tradition of prayer, where prayer and praise, now notice this, where prayer and praise should be seen as like a bird's two wings. You can't have one without the other. Thus, praise is forever linked to prayer. And it is here, right in the Gospel of Matthew, for we have the word for to begin this whole thing. That's a conjunction. It ties the two together, prayer and then now praise. For thine is the kingdom. And the connection between our prayer now becomes an expression of our praise. And Packer goes on to say, this connection of thought is that we ask our heavenly, while we have asked our Heavenly Father for provision and pardon and protection with great confidence, since we know that for Him to give this to His children, on one hand is within His capacity, on the other hand is in line with His character, and He shows it all when He deals with men, and that is all glory. The church historian Ernst Lohmeyer, he put it all together by saying this, that what happened was that the Jewish Christians who took this prayer to heart and and began to repeat the Lord's Prayer daily, did it with the customary ending of of a doxology and finally added it to their daily worship. And from there it it, it permeated the practice of the early church. And ultimately, I'd add, it becomes for us now a perfect outline of what it means to compose a personal testimony of praise. Remember how I I started this. I I started it with the belief that if you dedicate yourself to a discipline in life, you should be able to experience some specific measurable results. And coming out of the school of prayer, you should also be able to put that experience into words. Give it a voice. Name names. Make a list. Shout it from the mountaintop. For as a result of prayer, you stand the chance of discovering something wonderful about God, that He is on His throne and is a king, and that He is all-powerful, and that He he possesses a glory of majesty that has no limit to it. It goes on forever and ever. And with that confession, all you can do is say, Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, good, good. You're Baptist. Great. So, so if at the very beginning of this prayer, in, in Jesus' instruction, we find out how to compose our prayers so that we can, as Jesus says, pray the right way. You see that there in Matthew 6, verse 9. It all begins with Jesus saying, pray then this way. He gives us instruction on how to compose our prayers. If we begin by learning how to compose our prayer, we now end with a lesson on how to compose our praise. And we do it first by acknowledging who he is. It should probably come no, as no surprise that when you begin with a, with a prayer like we have in verse 10, thy kingdom come, you, you deliberately step out on a journey of discovery where you then deliberately begin to open up whole regions of your life and your world to his authority to discover who he is as king. Thy kingdom come, and, and as it does, I discover who you are as king. And with each step then, you awaken to the fact that he is not just king, 
in small letters, but king in capital terms. So much so that no matter what you face in life, no matter where you turn in your world, you can say with confidence, thine is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the kingdom. It is all under your rule. I think of that every Christmas when we, when we read that passage about Jesus in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You know that familiar passage where we are given all these names of Jesus uh, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called, and then we have this list, Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, it is one thing to read those names as titles, as if they appear on his business card uh, in the Bible. It's one thing to read those names as titles, but it is a whole other thing to look at those names after having actually experienced a relationship with Jesus Christ over the years, having trusted him, having been committed to him, as, as your Lord and as your King, and after having been obedient to His claim on your life and having prayed for His guidance and His care and His presence in each step of life, it is one thing to read that verse in Isaiah and a whole other thing that now having lived the life of obedience with Him, it becomes a, a personal testimony that allows you to be able to say of Jesus, He is wonderful. He is the wisest counselor I could could ever imagine. And he's already proven himself to be the mighty God. And he he is a father who is everlasting. And he is the Lord of my life. And he is the prince of my peace. So then no matter where I look, he is the one who reigns supreme. And every step I have taken in prayer with him has proven this to be true. And now as I finish my prayer, all I can do is be able to declare it from the mountaintops in praise. You are the king. Thine is the kingdom. Helmut Tillich, I mentioned him two weeks ago, the German pastor who preached his way through the Lord's Prayer as the bombs in World War II were were, 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 were destroying his city and, he, and sending his congregation into the, to the shelters, to, shelters to huddle. He picked this whole theme up and he said, we can only pray this prayer with meaning and understanding by standing within the kingdom, experiencing life in the kingdom, by living in dependence upon our Lord and seeing our world now then through the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he offers this illustration. I love it. He said, it is like the colored windows of a church. If you go around the outside of a church, you see nothing but gray monochrome and and cannot tell whether the windows are merely dirty or sooty panes or, or even works of art. We have no idea. In other words, you are seeing them from the wrong perspective. But the moment you enter the nave of the sanctuary, the windows begin to shine. And the whole story of salvation is captured in color and it begins to surround you. You see, when we pray the Lord's Prayer from the heart and say, Thy kingdom come, we are ushered inside to the kingdom. So it is really no surprise then that we would be allowed to pray a doxology of surprise and wonder and joyous declaration, Thine is the kingdom, as we look around and see the sheer majesty that has been surrounding us all along. For we acknowledge who he truly is. 
The doxology allows us to acknowledge who he is, but it also allows us to assert what only he is capable of doing. Thine is the kingdom and the power, we read. And our praise begins by affirming who he is as king. We also assert of what he is able to do as the king with power, exercising his authority. Notice that how, the, how the kingdom and the power, they go together. Sovereignty and omnipotence, they, they, they cannot exist without each other. Psalm 62, verse 11 says it beautifully. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. The Old Testament refers to God as almighty in describing this power 56 times. And never once is that word or that concept ever given to any other being, man or even the evil one. It is his divine right and in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we read, it is, his attri- it, is, it is his exclusive and evident attribute. We read that, it says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. So it's no wonder that when Jesus is able to tell those who would follow them in John chapter 15, verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing, he really means it. And those who follow him know that to be true. That apart from the power of God, apart from the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from the power that belongs in the essence of the Trinity, we can do nothing. As I think of this, I I have a picture in mind that illustrates it so well. I've actually, if you can kind of see the outlines of it on the screen, it may be familiar to you. It was painted in 1881 by the French painter Emile Ranouf, and it was depicting an old man dressed in fisherman's garb, seated in a boat with a little girl beside him. Do you see that there? And both the old man of the sea and this little child, this little girl, they have their hands on this huge oar. And if you can actually see it very closely, you'll see that he is looking very fondly and admiringly upon this precious little girl. Apparently, he has told her that she can assist him in rowing the boat, and so she feels that she is doing all the work. You can see that in her face if you look at it carefully. She's got this look of concentration. I'm moving this boat. But it's also easy to see that while her hands are on the oar, it is, in fact, his strong and muscular arms which are actually powering that boat through the waves. The painting itself is called A Helping Hand, and and it's it's a beautiful parable of what a soul can do when it depends upon God. It is is God's hand that propels us through life, and it is God's presence that has carried us through and has carried you. You have to admit it through the storms that have rocked your boat. So when we may take our daily steps in prayer, praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we can actually now, at the end of it all, look back at our, day, at our lives and see ourselves as like that little girl and realize that it really was his helping hand that exercised his will and propelled us through life so that now, with our praise, we can only say, thine is has been and always will be the power.
And so in this outline of praise, this doxology, once we've affirmed his authority as king and have asserted his ability in power, we are also now left with one final thing, and it is all glory. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I can imagine that the dimensions of all three of these, kingdom, power, and, and, and glory, are, are defined by that phrase, forever and ever. All three of them go far beyond our ability to measure or even imagine. But I like the fact that glory sits right next to this endless vision, simply because it takes us into his embrace and it affirms what becomes of us because of him. I really appreciate the way that J.I. Packer also then looks at this definition of glory in the scriptures and he says, when we think of glory, God's glory, we find that we are thinking of two things actually. The scripture causes us to think of two things. First, the very splendor of his being, that Shekinah glory that is even brighter than the light. This is the type of brilliance that caused Moses to hide his eyes, the vision of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that caused the disciples to shield their eyes as well. It is at first the splendor of God's very being, but it is also the second, when we think of glory, we must simply think of of honor, the dignity and the honor that we, as his creatures, his children, are able to reflect back to him. Both of these infinitely belong to God. But, but glory, glory may be a hard thing to recognize as we, as we look in the mirror and see ourselves. Well, by you, but I look in the mirror and what I see looking back at me is aging and wrinkled. And, and glory would not be the title I would give the picture that I see. But when we reflect the image of God, we are actually like, a mirror reflecting back to him what we see in him. Carrying the image of God makes us like a mirror in his hand. And as children of God, we are able to reflect back to him what he has done in us and what he sees in us. Take that image to heart when you hear such passages as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. If anyone is in Christ, what? He is a new creature. Behold, the old is gone. The new is coming. What a reflection. Or in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, as we read this morning, in, 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 chap, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day, uh, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. J.I. Packer goes on to say, glory carries two interlocking meanings. First, the manifestation of, of majesty, and second, the response and the honor reflected from the creatures who are overwhelmed by it all. We have our place with him, and there we find our honor. There we find glory. And so our prayer erupts into praise, where our our words in our life become doxology. And our business is to be able to express the glory so that all might know. That's doxology and is found all throughout the world, where like Paul does in Romans chapter 11, we can only say, "For, for of him and through him and to him are all things. 
to whom be glory forever and ever. We confess that our desire is that God be be magnified over all things, including ourselves and our little corner of life as we live it. And that is our answer to prayer. And that is our business when we go back to prayer. It it, it was the habit of of Johann Sebastian Bach Bach, to, to write at the bottom of each of his musical compositions three little letters, S-D-G. It was his practice to remind himself and anyone who would ever play his compositions where the glory of his life really lied, and it was God's alone. S-D-G stands for Sola Deo Gloria. Not D-G, glory to God, but S-D-G, solely, only to God alone, the glory of my life. And that's what we affirm at the end of the Lord's Prayer, that we are surrounded by the glory of God beyond our ability to express. And even though words may fail, we will still seek to give it a voice. Would you, with this final thought, pray with me as we come to the close of this the study of the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me the prayer that our Lord taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.